How was Australia? Fabulous. It yeah. was really wonderful. Yeah, just and both professionally and personally. Terry Dozier had just come back from a month-long trip to Australia when we caught up in her office to talk about the current state and future direction of public education. She was overseas to share her work on teacher training, and she has a lot of experience in this area. She's the director of the Center for Teacher Leadership and the Richmond Teacher Residency Program, both of which she talked about during our interview. She has also had a decorated career in public education, having been a public school teacher for several years and even serving in the Department of Education under the Clinton administration in the 1990s. She had lots to say about how to effectively train our teachers for work in high-poverty, high-need schools and what we can do about current issues with teacher shortages. Thank you so much for for joining us for this. Um, What's the purpose of public schools? Okay, well, you know I'm a social studies teacher, so my first response has got to be that public schools and public education um, basically exist so that we have an informed citizenry, that we ensure that all of our um, children grow up understanding uh, democratic principles and have the ability to analyze Uh, information and make informed decisions. Mm -hmm. Now, the next reason they exist is to ensure that all children, no matter what their um, economic background um, and zip code and um, just personal circumstances, have an opportunity to an excellent education. Um, Not only so they have the knowledge and skills to make a living, but to make a life. Mm -hmm. And um, so um, public schools really are, I think, the bedrock of our democracy, not only in terms of, as I said, informed citizenry, um, but ensuring that um, we provide the opportunities for all of our people to be successful Mm -hmm. in life. Do you think decisions that are being made about public education, both locally and nationally these days, are... Um, making changes with that purpose in mind, or is there something else? I'm very concerned about a lot of the decisions that are being made in public education, especially right now at the federal level with the emphasis on uh, choice and uh, private vouchers, uh, because again, it goes back to making sure that we provide the best opportunities possible for all children. And my concern about the whole choice issue is that um, if we go down that road, I fear that there will be leaders, and I think we, we are seeing that, who will say, well, parents had a choice, and therefore we absolve ourselves of the responsibility for ensuring that all children get an excellent education. So that concerns me. I think the high-stakes testing environment, originally the goal was, I think, a positive one, in terms of, again, ensuring that all children are getting an excellent education because I think too often in the past we have written children off because of their um, you know, socioeconomic background, um, their ethnicity, race, etc. And so I think originally the idea behind the testing to ensure that we weren't leaving children behind and basically, um, again, 
um, making assumptions about what they could and could not do um, was the the purpose of the testing. But it has now, I think, the pendulum has swung way too far in the opposite direction so that it is um, basically... I think being used as a tool by some to um, point to the fact that public schools are failing and therefore we need this choice and, and private vouchers and all these other things. Um, and it's also stifling um, what teachers are able to do in classrooms. I think the pressure of testing and the uh, pacing charts and the scripted lessons and all of those things are leading to another major problem that we're faced with and part of what uh, my work is is working um, to address, and that is um, severe teacher shortages, mm. um, and especially in our high-need schools. Mm. So you just uh, offered up a, a number of issues that are facing public education, and I think this next question is a little bit difficult to answer because I'm asking about what, what you see as the greatest challenge that's facing public education today. So I guess mm -hmm. another way of asking that might be, what's something centrally that you're focused on in your work right. that you're trying to improve right. public education? Right. Well, my work is focused on uh, ensuring that every child gets a talented, dedicated, well-prepared teacher. Um, and we know historically that has not been true on every measure of teacher quality. Um, our poor and our minority um, students get our least prepared, uh, least experienced teachers. And so my work is really focused on that because at the end of the day, the victory is in the classroom. And um, what transpires between the teacher and the student is really what is going to result in that informed citizenry that I've been talking about and, and children with the knowledge, skills, um, and dispositions, quite frankly, uh, to be positive contributors to our society and for them to be successful in life. Why do you think that is that our, our lowest income and our minority children a lot of times end up getting our, our least experienced teachers? Why do you think that that's a, a pretty persistent issue? Uh, well, I think on one level, part of the problem, of course, is the challenge. You know, the, I mean, we can't deny that these are really... Um, challenge schools with um, the challenges that concentrations of poverty bring to uh, the table. Poverty alone is not a barrier to learning, but when you have these this really high concentration of poverty, I think that in the past, um, and this is where the testing originally, I think, had a positive purpose, and it's now moved um, in the too much in, in another direction. Um, but I think, um, quite honestly, um, in a lot of communities, um, there were individuals in the political arena, and also, I think, in the community that would um, that did not necessarily want to provide the kind of funding needed um, for um, these high poverty communities and especially communities of, of color. Um, in, I taught in South Carolina and I clearly saw that. Um, and in, in fact, you know, I think you may know I played a role at the U.S. Department of Education. And so one reason for the federal role in education, because you know in our Constitution, if it's not initially, you know, if it's not stated there, it's a state's um, responsibility. But one of the reasons why the federal government became involved in education so heavily is that we saw that our minority kids 
kids with disabilities were not getting the same services and and even you know funding, um, and that's why the federal government played a role in that. So you know, and, and and I can speak specifically in South Carolina when you looked at, and I think it's probably true if you look across all of our states. Um, you know, the politicians um, are coming from the more affluent, uh, often suburban uh, communities. And so when you're looking at tax dollars, um, they're not um, as focused on, on mm-hmm. that, quite frankly, on yeah. those communities. They're not, as, they're not equally represented in our um, legislative process. I think that anecdotally, somebody who's worked in a public education setting, particularly one that's high poverty, can see that there are issues that face our um, students that go to high poverty schools that maybe wouldn't be as profound if they went to a mixed income school. So besides just that anecdotal evidence of being in the classroom and experiencing that and working Mm -hmm. with those students, Mm -hmm. could you speak to the the overall, maybe the research evidence that suggests that a student that's low income or low SES would, would probably do better if they were in a mixed income environment? Okay. There are research studies that have a, a, in fact, answered that question, yes. When you provide those opportunities for individuals to be in uh, a mixed income environment and and, uh, ethnically mixed as well, um, that are uh, students from low SES uh, and, um, you know, different racial backgrounds perform as well or better than if you if they remained in that um, concentrated um, environment where you have the high poverty you know and and quite frankly I saw that in my own classroom and and this is going to be the example of rural uh, South Carolina and suburban South Carolina so I used to have students who would come to me from the rural communities and really struggled in my class. And their uh, issue was that, gosh, they had always made A's in their school. Well, what was very quickly clear to me, several things. A, they were making A's because they were, you know, um, they didn't cause problems. They, they were good kids sitting there, you know, uh, listening to the teacher and I think doing what the teacher maybe asked them to do. But second, it was really clear to me the expectations and the standards in rural schools in South Carolina were much lower than the suburban communities. And I think that's part of what we're seeing. Um, Education Trust, which is an advocacy group in Washington. Um, I, when I served in Washington with the Clinton administration, I was really um, captivated by their studies and their research and showing how many of, um, and they were looking at, in many cases, urban schools mm-hmm. um, and minority kids who, in high school, they would walk in and the kids are coloring. Mm-hmm. They weren't doing demanding work. And part of that is, I think, people feeling like they can't do this work. Mm. Um, And so, um, again, I think that's the whole issue of these high expectations. But then you've got to provide the support. Mm -hmm. And um, equal funding is not the answer because the challenges are much greater Mm -hmm. in our uh, high poverty communities. And so, therefore, you really need to be looking not at equality but equity. Mm -hmm. And 
when you're looking at equity, you're looking at increasing resources for those who are beginning much further behind than are, you know, more affluent uh, kids. And I, again, am not going to quote this exactly correctly, but, you know, this, the study that showed um, just um, in terms of vocabulary, kids coming from high poverty come in with, you know, or I should say maybe, yeah, maybe I should say our middle class and upper middle class students come in with, you know, 10,000 more words Mm -hmm. in their vocabulary than um, our uh, poor students coming into classrooms. So, I mean, when you look at that kind of inequity, you're going to have to have more resources to help those Mm -hmm. kids, you know, come up to where we need them to be. Sure. And I, I think what you just said that really um, strikes me is that when you're talking about issues of equity, it's not just resources and making sure that everybody has the same access to high quality education, but also you need to have equity in terms of expectation. Right. And it goes back to that quote about the, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And see, that's where I'm saying, I think, and I'm sure there will be people who will disagree with me, but I think... Um, well, and I can speak for the Clinton administration, you know, the whole idea of um, holding teachers and, 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 and principals and, and school systems accountable for ensuring that they do have the same expectations for our poor and our minority um, students. Um, with the testing, that was the trying to get at that. Can we, you know, make sure that they're not just basically saying, oh, well, you know, you can't expect those kids to do well. Mm -hmm. And in my own high school, which was a suburban high school, so, I mean, if we didn't do well, all of us should be fired. Mm -hmm. I mean, these kids came from, um, you know, really um, strong backgrounds, parents, you know, educated and providing additional resources and opportunities opportunities during the summer and and throughout the year but when you broke up, broke down our school because not all of our kids were you know uh, more affluent um, then you began to see that we weren't as good as we thought we were mm-hmm. uh, in terms of providing the opportunities for all of our kids mm-hmm. so that was the original purpose but again I, I fear that for those who wanted to want to undermine public education, they've, they've used that as a way of saying public schools have failed. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, the pressure that the testing has created has led to um, situations where then it becomes even more difficult to get high quality people to go into those schools. Sure. So it sounds like having good evidence is really important. Absolutely. And that's the purpose of educational research. So what role do you see educational research having in advancing public education in our country? Well, I think, you know, we've already identified several um, examples of that where, you know, the, the research can point us to identify where we have weaknesses and where we have to, you know, begin to address those weaknesses. Education research can tell us what's effective and not. Um, And so it's really important that we pay attention to that and we don't make decisions just simply because we like something. In one of our early grants, uh, we had a grant where we were piloting a full-release mentoring model, and so many of our mentors, we call them beginning teacher advisors, were supporting teachers in high-need schools, and that's where those people go that aren't fully 
you know, prepared and, and, and uh, licensed. And, um, you know, they were just talking about the dramatic difference they saw and, and how difficult it was um, to help those individuals that had had no real preparation, mm-hmm. um, teacher preparation. I mean, the research is clear that without, you know, uh, understanding of child development, curriculum, and, and a supervised clinical experience, those individuals leave at twice the rate mm-hmm. of um, other teachers. So on one level, opening up, um, you know, and in, in, in the state of Virginia, here's, here's what I see. We have some of the highest standards in the country for licensing teachers. Mm-hmm. But then in the same breath, we're opening the door for people who don't have the preparation that they need. And so we allow the provisionally licensed to come in, and um, but they're not going to stay. Mm. And so we haven't really solved our problem. We're continuing to, it's like putting, um, you know, your finger in the hole of the, mm. the dike that's, you know, getting ready to burst. Um, we're constantly having to find um, people to replace those teachers. Mm-hmm. And that's what our residency program is really, quite frankly, designed to address. First, identifying people who really do have a heart for this work, mm-hmm. but then making sure they're well prepared for the realities of those classrooms. Because, you know, idealism uh, isn't enough, and mm-hmm. altruism isn't enough. You've got to be able to know how to be effective with kids that come to us with these challenges. And so, you know, that's what we're trying to do. And it's a more expensive approach to teacher preparation, but in the long run, it's going to begin to make a dent in that revolving door that mm. we see happening in our high-need schools. Talk more about the specific work that you do here at the Center for Teacher Leadership and with mm-hmm. your Richmond Teacher Residency Program to mm-hmm. do those kinds of things. How do, how do you go about trying to prepare teachers for work in a high-poverty, high-need environment? Well, as I said, it first starts with selection mm-hmm. uh, of candidates that we think have the right uh, dispositions for this work and the heart for this work. And then, you know, through our VCU master's degree coursework, uh, we're very deliberate about um, providing them the knowledge um, and the foundational um, theory and so forth of how to work in um, high poverty, high need schools. Um, Perhaps the most important piece of what we're doing in the residency program is that we are preparing them in the context within which they'll work. Uh, One of my favorite quotes is from Martin Haberman, uh, who was a professor at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, I believe, and spent his life um, studying teachers of poverty um, that were star teachers, he called them, that were highly effective with kids in these high concentration uh, poverty schools. And he identified different um, uh, uh, characteristics of those teachers. But he said preparing a teacher in, uh, for urban classrooms in a traditional teacher prep program is like preparing to swim the English Channel by doing laps in a university pool. Mm. Well, we know that the English Channel is not calm and serene <laughs> like a university pool, yeah. and the, it, therefore you've got to prepare um, 
your teachers in the environment in which they're going to teach. Mm -hmm. So that's the, you know, important piece. We carefully select the master teachers that work with our um, residents in a year-long residency, co-teaching, co-planning, co-teaching with them, um, because we want to make sure, A, that they're good role models. So we do unannounced classroom observations. But being a great teacher isn't enough. You have to have the ability to coach others. Mm -hmm. And not all great teachers can do that. A, they can't give up their classrooms, uh, but B, you know, they have to be reflective themselves. So we screen for that as well as then provide them with eight full days of very intensive new teacher center training, um, mentor teacher training, which is the only um, mentoring program that has met the U.S. Department of Education's research standard mm -hmm. of what works um, because they did a randomized study. And so they've shown that it not only increases retention, but also that the students of teachers who've been mentored using this approach, um, they um, have performed as well as um, veteran teachers, and also the most recent research is coming out that they have improved or increased their learning by I don't know, um, three to five months mm. uh, in reading. I believe again, I'm I'm not. <laughs> remembering the exact figures, but that's a place where research is really important. Um, another piece of why our program, I think, has been so effective is that the research says that the most effective teachers leave urban districts within the first two years. Mm. Now, um, that seems counterintuitive, except that um, the most effective teachers are the ones that have the highest expectations of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so if they don't feel that they're being efficacious, uh, then they're going to leave. Mm -hmm. And so the other component of our program that I think um, explains its success is that we support our graduates for two years after the residency year uh, with what we call career coaches that, again, are carefully selected, trained, and work with our uh, graduates at least one hour a week, mm -hmm. um, focusing on instruction. So it's a pretty thoughtful, comprehensive approach to trying to address this teacher shortage right. that's happening in urban environments. Right, yeah. right. What's the future of public education, do you think? Well, I hope it will be that um, we continue to recognize the critical role that it plays in our democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as we look at the changing demographics of our country, um, I think the handwriting is on the wall. Mm -hmm. If we don't attend to ensuring that our um, poor and our minority children get the best education possible, we will threaten our own prosperity. I don't think any of us can basically look at education as, well, you know, I've got mine now, I'm not going to worry about others, um, because uh, when we look at the fact that we um, are going to be, if we are not already, um, majority-minority mm -hmm. country, mm -hmm. um, then it behooves us to to really pay attention to that, mm -hmm. uh, and um, so you know that's that's I think uh, it's in it's in everybody's best interest. Where could people go? What website could they go to to learn more about 
the CTL and the Richmond Teacher Residency? Well, the Richmond Teacher Residency, you just go to, you know, if you just Google Richmond Teacher Residency, it'll mm -hmm. take you to our website. I think it's richmondteacherresidency.vcu.edu. Mm -hmm. um, and then our Center for Teacher Leadership, it's um, CTL dot vcu dot edu um, and I haven't really talked a lot about our, our um, Center for Teacher Leadership work um, and how it, I mean, clearly the residency program is part of our work from the standpoint that those really critical veteran teachers that we identify to be the what we call clinical resident coach, that mentor teacher working with our residents in that year-long medical-style residency. Um, that's our connection to this work. Um, our mission is to promote and support teacher leadership in order to improve teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. And we do that in three ways. We do it in really advocating and, and promoting the concept of teachers as change agents, that teachers can and should be agents of positive change in school. We provide high quality professional development mm -hmm. for um, teachers so that they can become more effective leaders. So the professional development we provide our CRCs in the Richmond Teacher Residency Program is an example of that. And then we share the knowledge, experience, and insight of teachers with policymakers and others. And that was part of my work in, in Australia was to say, if you're really serious about reforming your education system, you've got to engage teachers because um, when it's all said and done, and Michael Fullen is the person, uh, and I'm not sure I'm going to get this quote exactly right, um, education reform depends on what teachers think and do. It's as simple and as complex as that. So, I mean, bottom line is if you don't engage teachers and you don't listen to teachers as you're moving forward to improve our schools, the reform efforts will either be misguided or short-lived because the teachers will just ignore them. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's really a matter of, you know, um, just being practical about it. And, and for school leaders, and, and it's always fascinated me that school leaders sometimes um, think that this is taking their authority away when we talk about teacher leadership. But in fact, it's increasing their authority and ability to be successful mm -hmm. because we're way past the day where principals can be the be-all, end-all in, in our schools, mm -hmm. do everything. So tap your teachers mm -hmm. and their expertise. Um, and that's part of what the teacher morale study was all about, mm -hmm. right, for Merck, that you know teachers feel satisfied if they feel that their voices have been heard and they have a role in how we are going to make the changes we need to make mm -hmm. rather than be dictated to and told what to do. Yeah, so perhaps it's time for us to empower our teachers more than we currently do. Absolutely. That's yeah. what our center is all about, empowering. In fact, that was the title of my, my speech in Australia, empowering good teachers to become great leaders of learning. Yeah. Well, Terry Dozier, thanks so much for your time and your perspective, the work that you do with teachers, and by extension, our students. We're grateful. Thank you. Thank you.